0: Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point. I am your host, Debbie Mazner, and today we have a lovely guest from across the pond. Um, She goes by P.I. for Person Irresponsible, and she'll tell us a little bit more about that name. Um, But I'm super excited to have her on here because she reached out to me, has written a book, has done like a fabulous adventure that we're going to hear all about today. Um, and also hear about her experience with alcohol. So welcome, P.I.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Debbie. It's great to be here.
0: So you are calling from England, you mentioned. I am, yes.
1: And it's a a dry day, but it's pretty chilly now. Winter is arriving.
0: Wonderful. So tell us about... your name, I guess. First of all, we should get that out of the way because people will be like, "Person irresponsible." Why do you call yourself that?
1: Oh, it's it's interesting. Um, Pi or person irresponsible, and the Americans always hear it as personally responsible, as if I am to blame for everything in the world. Um, and I have to correct them on that. I'm just I'm just responsible for my part. And uh, and I'm largely, you know, not renowned for making very sensible decisions. Um, And so PI, or person irresponsible, is is the name that I I wrote my book under. And, And the reason I maintain that is, one, it was my trail name. And a trail name is something given to through hikers or something through hikers use. I don't know why. It's just part of the culture of it. And I, in 2020, walked across America. So I am now a fully fledged through hiker. But the reason for maintaining anonymity is because I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and the traditions are very clear that at the level of press, radio and film, we should remain anonymous. And so to comply with that, it's easier to just use my through hiking name. And, uh, and I was previously known as PI anyway, that if anybody ever wanted to complain about anything I wrote or did, they could write to person irresponsible and, and not really expect a sensible
0: response. <laughs> and I love that. And I think it's fun. It makes you unique. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, you reached out to me because you had quite an experience Last year, with hiking across America, like you said, but I, I wonder if we want to start back at the beginning of your relationship with alcohol.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one, one, um, you know, when I decided to walk across America, I was as sober as a person could be. I hadn't had a drink at that point for over three years. I was in my fourth year of recovery. And uh, and I, I I went the AA route uh, simply because I didn't know about anything else, uh, but it's worked for me and I and I um, and I stick with it because it's just sobriety is so precious and it's so fragile that it's not worth experimenting with. And so that's the route I went. That's how I got sober and that's how I remain sober. Um, so my journey with alcohol begins really you know really really young. I grew up in a high drinking household um, and. They had this belief, this parenting philosophy, that if you give kids alcohol, it totally demystifies it for them and, and they won't grow up to be alcoholic. So as parenting philosophies go, I'm probably not in support of it um, because I'm kind of the rule that or the exception that proves the rule possibly or just proves it as a poor philosophy. Um but it did kind of work because in my teenage years, although I drank, I wasn't as obsessed with it as perhaps some of my peers were because it, it just wasn't it, it wasn't this sort of mythical adult liquid that I was fascinated by. I'd always been around it, so I was a bit sort of indifferent to it. Happy to drink, happy to not drink, really. Um, but it, it all kind of, I found... I found the real potent effects of alcohol in my early 20s when I could shut my door on a Friday night and tuck myself in and have a nice glass of wine. And that nice glass of wine was actually one bottle of wine. And uh, and I used to love it. I didn't necessarily drink every day. I didn't get hangovers particularly. And then it became Friday and Saturday. And then, you know, sometimes... You know, it was quite nice to drink a bit more than a bottle of wine. And sometimes what I noticed was when I finished the wine, I was casting around for more and I didn't have any more, you know. And, and I think some of the things that keep alcohol contained for, for women and for me particularly, is, you know, in my early 20s, I didn't have a right lot of money. So it wasn't that easy to go out and get drunk all the time. But obviously drinking at home is significantly cheaper. But I also found I didn't have those pressures of being around other people and having to watch what I drank. I could just chill out, relax. And I've since come to learn that if I'm controlling my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. And if I'm enjoying my drinking, I'm not controlling it. And that's really the story of my drinking. So there are certain events where I can see now that it was accelerating. I got married in my uh, mid-20s to a high-drinking, a heavy-drinking man, and I hid behind that. You know, he drank, so I drank, and then I drank, so he drank. And, and you know, we travelled the world together, and we spent a lot of time in bars together, so I didn't do the tourist thing. I just got drunk. Um, I didn't know I was alcoholic. I wouldn't have ever called myself an alcoholic because, you know, lots of people drink to excess. So if you're looking for those kind of people, you're going to find them, you know, like attracts like. Um, And so it was only really when I got to – Well, when my marriage broke down in my very late 30s and I just turned to booze and it was a major accelerant. So I'd gone from drinking heavily to just wanting to be drunk all the time to deal with the heartbreak and the hurt and the anger and the disappointment and all of that. So when I finally walked into my first AA meeting, I was a sort of emotional wreck I wasn't drinking around the clock. I never drank in the mornings. I didn't drink before 6 o'clock because that would make you an alcoholic. I didn't necessarily drink seven days a week. In fact, some weeks I had to work five days, and therefore I could only drink two, and I found that outrageous. Um, But I just knew I could stop, but I couldn't stay stopped, and I really wanted a break from the stuff. But no matter what, I kept going and getting more wine. So I'd, I'd chalk up a few days, and then... I don't know, something would happen, the cat would meow most probably. Nine times I had 10, I had to find the bloody cat to get it to meow, and then I could justify the drink. So it was just the whole thing became really obsessional. It became the center point of my life, and, and it, it happened slowly. And I live in a country where we are, we we do worship booze. And, and I say that knowing that four out of five people in the UK don't or barely drink. But the the one fifth of us drink for the rest of the population, you know, and I've certainly drank my lifetime's allowance and several of my neighbours, you know, so that's them deprived for a while. Um and I, I just, and we, we, we sort of, we really glorify it, and we make it seem so sophisticated. And yet, now I'm sober, I have yet to meet a sophisticated drunk. We're just not that great. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I, it was a struggle to get sober in the sense that I didn't necessarily. The cat has just joined us, by the way. So if you hear me out, I have got coffee, and that's what you'll hear me drinking. Um, but it, it's, I I've sort of come to learn that you know, that I'm not, I I have this obsession with booze that not everybody else has. And I sort of come to learn actually life is so much better without drinking it. There's so much more you can do. And that doesn't include walking across America. You know, it's not a compulsory part of sobriety, but it it was, uh, it was fun.
0: So for you, you grew up kind of in a Interesting family situation where your no. parents for decided just to kind of make drinking a non-issue and be okay for mm-hmm. kids. And it wasn't till later in your life and especially after your divorce that it really became a problem and then um, yeah
1: absolutely I mean it was always looking back it was always a problem but the amount that I drank changed over time um, I always drank to excess I loved drinking I loved the party life I loved I loved drinking at home especially because I didn't have to worry so much about consequences um, but I also you know there was this heavy drinking culture in, in my family background as well so it was normalized. It was only when I got into recovery and, and sobriety that I, I learned that the maximum women should drink is one bottle of wine a week. And it's like, well, what's the bloody point? There's no point in drinking one bottle of wine a week. That's nothing. That came as complete revelation to me um, that you know, some people out there really do drink that and that's all they ever need. Um, that, was, that wouldn't have done a night for me, really.
0: Sure, same. It's kind of like decaf coffee too, like, mm. oh, what's the point? Um
1: <laughs> That said, I like decaf coffee, but you know, it just proves that I'm a bit strange.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So, so for you, what was most helpful to be alcohol-free was AA.
1: It was, to be honest, it was one of those things that I didn't know of anything else.
0: What
1: mm-hmm. um, in, in the UK, you know, to go and get help, most people will go to their their GP, their doctor. Um, but there are there is stigma involved in having a drinking problem. You know, it car- it's not considered a disease in this country or an illness. It's considered a willpower problem, and therefore you're just being a bit pathetic if you if you can't manage your drink, and that seems to be a, a, quite a common perception. And if you go to your doctor, of course, you then have to have it on your medical records. Well, that can have long term consequences on your career. And I was quite career minded for much of my life, so I certainly didn't want anything on my my doctor's records to say that i drank there's other repercussions that if you're having problems with alcohol you may have your license taken away from you your driving license well that can have a huge impact on your career if you have children um they can let social services know so when you suddenly start to think you know when i I don't know about other people but i was very sensitive and very paranoid when i first you know started to realize I had a drink problem I didn't want anybody to know it was my filthiest secret and I was so ashamed of it so so when I you know when I sort of was coming up with the options it was all a bit of a series of happenstances in a way that I came across AA I had some vague notion of it but I didn't really know what it was and all I wanted was a break I didn't want to stop drinking forever I just wanted a break and in my logic I just thought well you know those alcoholics, if they can do it, they'll be able to show me how to do it. And all I want to do is 28 days of not drinking, then I can sort my life out. And then I'll carry on drinking again. Um, the plan went wrong, because I went to AA, and they really put me off drinking. Um, <laughs> so, for Which I'm eternally grateful at the time, not so pleased, but now very, very grateful. And, and so it was I didn't know of anything else and I was living in Scotland uh, when I sort of decided to give up the booze or stop drinking the amount I was drinking and they were rolling out an alternative called Smart Recovery, um, which is a government funded um, program. Uh, which is doing really well. It's taken off, and and you know they claim that they can teach you to control your drinking. I've never controlled my drinking. I've never wanted to control my drinking, so I'm not sure it would have worked for me. But it certainly works for some people. So I'm not here to to diss that at all. And there are other um, alcohol recovery services around, but I knew nothing of that at that time. So it was when I placed the phone call to AA and I found out I didn't have to give my name. I never had to fill in a form. I could just sit in the back of a meeting and and never be there, um, you know, officially that it became very appealing because I thought, well, these, you know, these professional drinkers will show an amateur like me how to sort of abstain for 28 days.
0: Okay. That makes perfect sense. And, and just like you said, having that stigma, and the barrier to seeking care with those consequences um, on your medical record and whatnot, it it did make AA more appealing for you, mm. and not and feeling like you didn't have much of a choice. So, mm. and it stuck. <laughs> it stuck, and, and it's
1: the best thing I've ever done. And I think, like a lot of people, you know, you walk in. A lot of the meetings are in church um, basements, and. Or, or chapels or, or so on so we automatically as a is connected to that church which is a it, it's faulty thinking because it's not i've since learned it's because the rent's really bloody cheap and if we all wanted to give lots more in terms of donations we could have it in the hilton but we don't so we, we keep it cheap um and also alcoholics generally aren't necessarily got that much money going around um in some instances so um one don't let the locations um put you off and secondly it's famous for the 12 steps and the 12 steps uses the god word and i think in america attitudes to religion are slightly different than they're here in the uk it can really freak us out we honestly we see the god word and, and the second word you'll think is cult and um, Therefore, the minute you look in, you walk into AA, you think, "Oh my goodness, this is a cult, and I'm terrified. I'm going to be abducted and given to aliens, and you know, sacrificed, and all of this." So, again, it it can be quite off-putting. But I actually, you know, I, I there was quite a lot of religion in my more extended family, so I was quite, and I travelled the world, so I was kind of, I could sort of protect myself from from feeling like, "Oh my goodness, I've joined this religious sect." But, um you know, I, over time I've had to change my attitude considerably, and, and whilst I still don't class myself as religious, I have truly adopted the spiritual way of life, and I'm so much the happier for doing so.
0: Well let's get to where you decided to have this adventure of, of hiking through America. <sighs>
1: Well, that again, I can blame AA for that madness. Um, (laughs) Like I say, they really changed my life. It's a fellowship. And so, you know, you end up meeting like minded people. And and I'm, I'm a woman, you know, I'm now in my early 40s, or when I joined AA, I was in my early 40s, alas, no longer. And, um, and so a lot of my peers were coming at the same time. So I made all these great friends very quickly, who were also in the early sobriety. And we went on this sort of journey together. And, and, and actually, my circle of friends—I'm the only one that's still sober. Another one died sober, but I'm the only one that's still sober. So it shows you how how um, devastating this this disease is. Mm-hmm. Um, And it was her that had watched this film called Wild. This friend of mine that died had watched this film called Wild. And she was really taken with it. And she kept banging on, like, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. And I was like, really, I don't? It's not my cup of tea. And and the standing joke between us is, if she loved a film or a book, guaranteed I'd hate it, you know, and and vice versa. So when she's raving on about this thing, I was just like, listen, love, it's not going to happen. Stop it. And she carried on. So I said, fine, I'll cook you dinner. And uh, and so, long story short, I watched it with her. And then she'd go and read the book, go and read the book. So I was like, oh, flippin' heck. And at the time, I was doing these series of challenges where people suggested I did something. If they were happy to pay for whatever, I'd go and do it no matter what. So she bought me the book and said, go read this book. And uh, and so I read this book, watched the film, and it just gripped me. So then I ended up reading six more books on, the, on what's called the PCT or the Pacific Crest Trail, And I was fascinated with, it never occurred to me, people can walk the entire length of America from north to south. I had no idea. This is the world's longest trail. And again, you know, I just kept thinking, well, it'd be really nice to go for quite a long walk, actually, you know, therapists always say, if you've got a lot on your mind, go for a walk. And, (laughs) you know, it helps clear your mind. And I was like, well, I have a lot on my mind. Maybe I need a particularly long walk. And it was just, you know, so I was reading all these books, and and again, you know how sort of social media works now with cookies and all that sort of stuff. I got in the bath one day, and and I was sort of going up onto YouTube to look for something to listen to, like a, a podcast. And I really enjoy podcasts about alcohol and alcoholism, um, and people's stories. And we, you know, we tend to be brutally honest, and and lots of us have a great sense of humor, so they they make for great podcasts. And, uh, and and on this sidebar, it just came up how to apply for a PCT licence. I was like, blimey, I didn't even know you needed a licence. No one mentioned it and then i clicked on it and i then i googled about this license and i found out it was that very day and there was only one day that year you could apply for a permit so i just jumped out of the bars, rushed upstairs naked very fat wobbly not not a pretty picture <laughs> sat at my computer and 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 completed all these like um different courses you had to do one was about campfires i mean i, I I could barely light a log burner, you know. Um, and the other one was like, leave no trace. And it was all the principles of how to take care of the wilderness. And then I applied for this permit. And I think at the time about, you know, four, four, for every four people that applied, one was successful. So it wasn't a guarantee. And I got one and I got one on a reasonable date as well. And it was like, blimey, blimey, you know, I'm going to go do this. And, and I think at that point I was like, God, this is terrifying, and I just completely refuse to think about it. And I don't walk. I'm not an outdoor – you know, I was fat. I was early 40s. I was female. I was, I was, as we would say, fucked, you know. Um, but it was just – it felt like I should really do this. And I really – I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I'd be physically capable of doing it. You know, me and exercise – I wish I'd become addicted to exercise. It would have been such a better story. But I don't. I'm a sofa surfer, and I love living on my sofa. And so I had no idea really why I thought I should do this or could do this. Um, I'd done other things. You know, I'd always lived quite an exciting life, but everything I'd ever done had been motorised. You know, that's the best way of doing anything. So the idea of powering myself across the country on two feet was was terrifying. And then, of course, you know, you have a whole host of wildlife out there that we we only see in in zoos or on TV. And I just tried my best not to think about those things, too. So, yeah, there was a lot of denial and and serendipity involved.
0: Wow. But like meant to be. So if Mm -hmm. if you're if you haven't listened to or you haven't watched Wild or read the book, Can you give a brief overview of what it is about and what exactly is the Pacific Crest Trail?
1: Absolutely. So Wild is a film about a young woman who was in her early 20s whose mother had died four years prior, and she'd never really got over it. She took a lot of heroin and other drugs and substances, and so she decided, and and her marriage had broken down. you know, she was, as we would say, an emotional basket case at this moment of her life. And so she decided to go for a long walk along the Pacific Crest Trail. Now, the actual trail itself is 2,653 miles. And she walked about a 1,000 miles of it. And she skipped past some of the really ropey bits, the really sketchy bits. Um But at the end of it, you know, she finds redemption. She finds peace. And and I'm so sorry about the cat contributing to this <laughs> conversation. You're going to hear him. You can see why he drove me to drink, honestly. <laughs> um and so but anyway she but she goes off on her own and this is in the 90s and walks alone with old-fashioned maps, and and she was, you know, not particularly a, a, an experienced hiker, and she did this on her own, and and she wrote a book, and it became a bestseller, and then they made a film with Reese Witherspoon, and and since then, it's captured lots of people's imagination. I really salute her because, doing that sort of stuff in your in the '90s, with the, you know, it, there wasn't any technology, and and I think things were slightly more dangerous for women on their own in those times um i'm not saying they're safe now but i think in, in those times particularly it, it would have been hard um and i figured you know i'm i'm at the time i was 40 oh, how old was i 45 and uh, and i figured well if she needed a thousand miles i'm twice her age i'm going to probably have to use all of the distance so like i say officially it's the world's longest trail um because it's continuous it, it goes from the mexican border to the canadian border uninterrupted obviously there's a few things like wildfires that might get you to detour um, there was a rock slide you know occasionally you, you can't actually stay on the original trail there's some um, endangered frogs at one part so you have to reroute around those um, but by and large it, it's a continuous trail and it's officially the world's longest so it's quite a quite an effort and it's what I didn't know most people call it and indeed I made this mistake very embarrassing Um, it's not called the Pacific Coast Trail because it's nowhere near the sea. It's hundreds of miles inland where you have bears and rattlesnakes and all sorts of other hideous things. Um, And high mountains, and it's all along the crest of these mountains. So you go through the the Sierra Range, and then you go through the Cascade Range.
0: This is so amazing. So you were not a hiker, not a – I mean, and you just on a whim – Applied yeah. for this permit, you had your dates, so yeah, what was it like? When did you go? Well
1: <laughs> it was brilliant for the first minute. And then reality set in that I I many, many, many years ago in my early twenties, i I'd, I'd my my now ex husband had said, you know, taking me campaign. I think we'd gone to like a Formula One race and we were staying in a tent. I'd woken up the next day and I looked at him and I said, If you ever put me in a tent again, I will divorce you. You know, so me and camping—I consider camping a completely loathsome pursuit. I could not have been more ill-prepared for this, except for possibly Cheryl Strayed, who—who was the um, protagonist in *Wild*. Um, And and so I bought this cheap tent, which was totally unsuitable. So I had to replace that quite quickly. I, you know, everybody goes on about lightweight this and lightweight that. I'd gone for bargain everything, and of course, it's not the great—you know—it's not great equipment for long-distance hiking. So within the first mile, I I was confused as to why it had taken me nearly 40 minutes to walk a mile. Whereas in the UK, I could do a mile in 20 minutes. And I know because I timed myself, you know. And of course, what I hadn't factored in was a whole load of things. One, when I walk in the UK, I'm at 400 feet above sea level. Now I'm at 4,000 feet heading towards 12,000 feet above sea level or 13,000 feet. Two... This this country is largely flat by comparison. You know, yours goes up and down and up and down and, you know, um, oh, it's terrible. Three, I didn't when I did my mile in twenty minutes. I didn't have a rucksack on with a week's worth of food, with with tent and and sleeping equipment and cooking equipment and you know safety equipment and first aid kit. So all of these things had a you know a huge impact on how how quickly I could walk, and um. And so, you know, so I got to this mile, the first mile marker, and I was like, blimey, American miles are really far. They're a lot bigger than both miles. (laughs) Of course, there's no difference, but that was just the way my mind worked. So I knew straight away I was in a world of trouble. I really was going to be in a world of trouble. Um, but the one thing I have learned about myself is I have, you know, because I'm a, an alcoholic and because I've, I've had enough hangovers in my lifetime, I have enormous amounts of fortitude. If you think about hangovers, they really, everything was hard work with a hangover. When you when I was actively drinking, doing the housework was hard, getting up for work was hard, doing any kind of extra activities were hard. Everything was tremendously difficult, and, and since I've stopped drinking, it's amazing how, how much easier cooking and cleaning and going to work is <laughs> and looking after animals and, and being friendly. Um, and so, you know, it was like what it had developed to me was enormous levels of fortitude so I could cope with the pain and I could almost cope with the fear in a way because I, I didn't know until I'd got in recovery that I've always been quite an anxious person. Um, because I used to mask it um, so well and I used to keep it very hidden. Well, I thought I kept it hidden, of course. Obviously, I now know I didn't because I drank a lot. Um, So in some ways, you know, I was made for this trip because I was used to living in fear and I'm used to hardship. But this was a whole different level of hardship. And, And like I say, the first day it was a real leveler of my pride because I think Cheryl Strayed had done six miles in the book and, um, and in the film they make a point and I'd been really scornful, like six miles, how ridiculous is that? And so, you know, my first days walking, I very quickly realised if I can make it to seven miles, I'm going to be thrilled. <laughs> and I'm not going to think about the remaining 2,640 something to go.
0: That so you did the full trail. You started where and ended where? I started
1: in Mexico. Well, I started at the Mexican border um at the time they hadn't built the wall there so it was this this really flimsy metal fence i was like really all oh, this who are for that and so i started you know i started there at the controversial wall and, and literally just turned around and faced north and went i'm walking that way um but of course the trail itself you know it it, it doesn't just go in a straight line northward you know it goes east and west and sometimes very bafflingly south for quite some time um <laughs> And so yeah, so I did the desert, which was about seven hundred miles, um, and the desert was yeah, there was a lot of snow in the desert, which completely confused me, and then I hit the Sierra Mountains, and and they say with the Sierras to go in in mid June at the earliest because that's when conditions are are at their best. But when like me, you're a foreigner, you you're time bound by a, a six month visa. And they've changed the rules controversially. the The PCTA, the organizing, the association that sort of organizes these permits, has changed the rules so that you can't skip past the Sierra and come back and do it when the conditions are better. You've got to do a continuous line now through that section. You can't move around it, and so that encourages or forces everybody to go in when the snow conditions are still pretty harsh, and and so it, it brings in the risk of avalanches and and you know falling through snow crevasses and all sorts of other things. So I don't personally think it's a great rule, um, particularly for us older, weaker people. Um, But, yeah, so I did get through that. I did skip – I did the big mountain forester and then I skipped to – I sort of came out and came around them and then carried on through the rest of the Sierra just because I I was just not skilled for those kind of really highly specialised areas. Um, And then you go into Northern California, which is very barren, Uh, And then, you know, Oregon, which I loved because it was just trees, trees everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then Washington, um, which, again, more trees, um, but very high mountains. And um, so the whole sort of thing you can sort of divide into five sections. and, And so it kind of breaks up the thing. But I mean, California went on forever. California was, you know, four months of or just over four months of the walking was in California. So, yeah, very long state, that one.
0: And that, and you were doing it last year during the pandemic.
1: In the pandemic, yes, which was again controversial. You know, it was difficult to decide what to do for the best. And and I know lots and lots of people. Obviously, the wilderness was empty. Everybody not everybody. The vast majority had gone back to their places. But I, I I lived in a rental in the UK, so I put everything in storage. And, and the UK went into a really severe lockdown. So there was nowhere, in some respects, nowhere for me to go. Um, and I'm sure somewhere on somewhere would have given me a back bedroom if I'd asked, but I didn't. Um, and I, I honestly was really optimistic about this pandemic that hey, it's all going to be over by the end of the summer, <laughs> you know. And the people we met on the trail, they were lovely. Everybody was sort of a bit, sort of, well, it's all a bit bewildering. And it was really baffling to begin with, you know, just... We live in a hype filled world, and, you know, I think when you live in a very sensationalist 24-hour-a-day news sort of existence, you can – everything becomes a long drama. So it's very hard to sometimes ascertain when something's hype and something's actually something quite scary. And the way I figured was, well, if there's this, you know, deathly virus going around, I'm better off in the wilderness than I am moving around towns anyway. But it was – social media was quite brutal. You know, they weren't um, – It wasn't a very nice read on social media. But on the whole, I had absolutely no problem. You know, wore the masks and and took sensible precautions.
0: Oh, yeah. I just think it's so fabulous that you, you did this. Uh, such well, a- the big benefit
1: and disadvantage was it made it very very lonely because yeah. there was just no one else out there for months at a time and you know the longest I went without speaking to another human being or any indication that there'd been another human being on planet earth was four and a half days there was no planes in the sky or anything so yeah and that was the best and the worst of it you know because sometimes you want to be social and you do want other hikers around um but i spent about 70% of my nights sleeping alone overall um so yeah so it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and and like i say i'm i'm i don't really regret doing it because it was a very it felt like old school long distance hiking
0: yeah it's it's amazing and you wrote a book about it called everything everything you ever taught me
1: yes because one of the things i mean it it's uh, being an alcoholic the thing i've learned i've learned so much about myself and i've learned so much in aa you know i went to aa thinking it was all about not drinking actually it's my thinking that leads to my drinking so it's all about what can you do to change your thinking. and um and so you know the 12 steps are a really great way of learning to manage you know all your emotions from being too excitable and too optimistic through to too much guilt, too much shame, too much self-loathing. And so it's a real place of, of change. And, and it teach, it taught me so many life skills that I hadn't acquired, you know, partly through growing up in very dysfunctional um, circumstances, probably, oh goodness me, he's a back, you know, and so it, I learned so much about how to break the day down, you know, right into early recovery that it's so hard to think about never drinking again. It's impossible. And I can't say to you, I'm never going to drink again. It's too big, but I can say to you, I'm not going to drink today. I'm going to do whatever it takes to not drink today. So breaking everything down into really small things. And then, becoming much more compassionate. And I still have to work on this. I I have these terribly perfectionist tendencies that I want to do everything perfectly and brilliantly and be top of the class, even when I'm not in a class, you know. And, um, and so, you know, having to learn to sort of cope with that constant fear of am I going to be in live by a bear? Well, no, you're not in bear country right now so it's fine but the rattlesnakes will get you you know so having to deal with fear and anxiety and the fact that it teaches you know the trial teaches you just to take each day as it comes literally and you don't know what's going to happen that day you can have expectations but you're probably going to be wrong and i think that's what you know aa taught me so i ended up writing a book called everything you ever taught me because you know i had this epic journey of fear and loneliness and and hunger hunger like you wouldn't believe i was permanently starving by the end um and and sheer exhaustion tiredness but i also had a head full of lots of bad memories and lots of anxiety and lots of anger and that head goes with you when you walk so it was all about how to manage that kind of extreme adventure with a head like mine that just constantly says you're not good enough and you shouldn't be here and you know, you're rubbish at this. And, and yet, despite that carrying on. So the book was, you know, and and along the way, obviously you meet people and and something I hadn't expected was how much drug taking there is, um, on within the three hiking community. Mm. And although drugs aren't a big part of my story, you know, they are certainly very tempting when you're very vulnerable. Um, and watching how that you know drugs affected other people particularly like you have cannabis that's legal in the states it's not legal here but it's been changed and redesigned into almost sweets and and sherbets and all sorts of other really fanciful things that they look the wrappings really childish so it looks really enticing and fun and exciting but it still has an adverse effect on some people not everybody like alcohol it doesn't affect everybody in the same way so it was really interesting watching some people really succumb to their you know dare i say addiction because they couldn't see that their need to have drugs all the time was affecting their behavior. So whereas once you're sober, you can see how, you know, how it nibbles, how addiction and alcohol abuse nibbles at your quality of life, but it does it so subtly that you don't see it shrinking. Um, So, you know, so I, I, I found myself walking with drug users and, and all of that. And I found myself getting frustrated because I had a different goal to them and, and, you know, and then all the conflict of dealing with other hikers. And and so I talk about, you know, how how I maintained sobriety through that that trip through the 12 steps and but also how I ultimately, despite all the odds, I mean, you would not place money on me finishing this. I did it. And and uh, and I had quite an epic journey. And uh, all of my fears came true. You know, I encountered everything that I was scared of and dealt with it.
0: So when, what does it, what does your title mean? Everything you ever taught me? Who is that referring to?
1: The you can be pretty much anything. I, you know, I go back, I don't, particularly right about my drinking because i always think well most people know how to drink you know. <laughs> so i just explained anyone that's not a drinker i just explain how i came to the conclusion that i was alcoholic which is one is never enough nor is a thousand you know and so i don't really go into great drinking stories but i do go you know you take a i took a head um I, my head divides itself into two things it's either ruminating about the past and and you know reminding me of either mistakes I've made or mistakes other people have made and it and it's constantly trying to take me down a you know a bad memory lane. Oh it's living in fantasy land. <laughs> you know, I'm never quite in the present. I'm never quite here. Um and so it's you know so sometimes I do talk about those life experiences I had that really shaped me and how the trail itself was was unlearning that for me and how the, the skills and lessons that I learned in AA were re-showing me that actually sometimes my thinking is just so corrupted that I've really got to change how I think. And so it's just how to navigate a world, you know, that sometimes I struggle to relate to. And and I think it's so common amongst people who abuse alcohol. We always feel we're a bit unique, special and different. And we always feel a little bit apart from. I think that's such a common theme with people who have abused um, drink or drugs. And I, you know, so it's how, how once you've spent decades, in my case, using alcohol to try and suppress my emotions and to try and hide behind it. When you're suddenly out there in the real world, you're raw. And it, and it can be, you know, like I say, it's a huge... Growing up is really painful. And when you're suddenly in your early 40s and all your peers have grown up and you've just drunk and partied for 20 years you have to do a lot of growing up in a really short space of time. So the books sort of really charts what through hiking is like, which is grim. It's disgusting. I mean, you stink. You don't take deodorant. It's foul. But it's also learning a lot about how you can manage your own head and, and how you can reprocess a lot of your old bad memories and things.
0: Well, what would you say are some of your tips for anyone looking to change their relationship with alcohol or make a big change? You know, there's some parallels between... You're... The
1: thing that saved me was was learning that I I have never given up the booze because I haven't given up something that's trying to kill me. You know, I've I've, I've set myself free from it, so tr- I don't I no longer think of myself as being deprived of alcohol. Um, I feel I feel truly liberated because it it had taken over and I it took over so subtly um so don't you're never giving up the booze it's just making a decision i'm not going to drink today and then the next part is i'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure i don't drink today so some people are always like you still go to meetings and it's like yeah i probably will you know for the rest of my life There's social affairs and 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 there's a lot of fellowship there i've made friends through that we have a great social life you know i'm always active and busy and I just, don't, and it doesn't revolve around drinking anymore, you know. So I find it easier now that I'm nearly 50 to make friends than I've ever found it in my life, you know, because I'm surrounded by people who also don't drink and en- enjoy life without drink involved. So I'd say that first and foremost is, is if, you, if you're like me, that alcohol is an emotional crutch. It's reminding yourself that it's actually just a toxin. And when you're drinking alcohol, all you're drinking is liquid anxiety. It's like a payday loan. You take it in, it gives you temporary reprieve, but the next day you've got to pay it back with interest. So your anxiety shoots up. And then, of course, that sets you up for needing more booze. So that top tip is 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 learning, and I used to hate this part of AA, is when people are, this too shall pass. And it's like when I'm having a bad emotion, my brain says this too shall stay. Um, and then, you know, so feelings are, they, they're little wild animals and they need to be trained. they actually, it's okay to have feelings. I never believed it was okay to have feelings. I actually genuinely thought I should be a Tom Tom because life would be so much easier if I didn't have feelings. Whereas now I'm a human being, I have feelings galore And I'm learning to how to cope with them and sit with them, be with them. And I no longer have to reach for that bottle. You know, and it's as simple as when I was happy, alcohol would make me ecstatic. If I was sad, alcohol would anesthetize me. If I was angry and I had that self, you know, righteous indignation, throw some booze down my my throat and I suddenly you know I'd be the wittiest person the sharpest tongue person I'd defeat them in a row you know and this is all going on in my head they're not even present um so alcohol was a very creative juice if you like but it was so artificial it was it's literally a toxin and it's mad to be throwing it into your body but I was truly mad that I believed my body needed it
0: and so what would you say or, you know, looking back, like, what do you wish you would have known earlier?
1: That I'm okay, just as I am. So much of my life, I've, I've, and I've, I've talked about this in my book at the end, you know, and I'm realizing it so much. I've spent my whole life feeling less than or inferior to and trying to hide that. So, you know, I had this outward sort of hardness that you can't hurt me. But I'd also alienate you because of that hardness. And underneath all of that, I was just a very damaged, very insecure, very hurt little girl. Um, And alcohol, you know, that's the perfect conditions for alcohol. It fills that up and it makes you feel okay. And actually, I was okay to begin with. And and alcohol took away what esteem and self-confidence I had. It stripped it bare. I didn't have great levels to begin with, but it took what little I could afford. You know, It took more than I could afford to give um and today I'm not like that today I'm okay I'm not you know I'm just okay and for the most part I'm I'm pretty relaxed and pretty chilled out yeah and that's I,
0: so, I yeah that's yeah so beautiful just you're I'm okay to begin with
1: mm. Mm. and alcohol alcohol made me into a monster there's no two ways about it I was not a pleasant junk. And I don't, you know. Now I'm in recovery, and I, I see drunk people all the time. It doesn't make anyone a pleasant drunk. But the the most baffling thing about alcohol is we all think we're really sophisticated drunks, Chirine. <laughs> you know mean? We weren't. were not we were just as much as a twat as the next person. Um, and so alcohol just lies and lies and lies and lies. And, lies. and it, it's the the perfect frenemy, isn't it really?
0: Yeah, frenemy yeah. is a very good word for it. What what do you see? What are your plans for the future? Well, I'd love to know. I really
1: don't know. I'm in a state of flux. I would love to. uh, I'd love to go and walk from Canada to Mexico. (laughs) Or the <laughs> other way. You know, like <laughs> yeah, and madness as it is, as much as I hated it the first time around and I was in so much pain. It's like childbirth. You know, you pop out one child, about two minutes later, you're like, oh, do you know what? I think I'll have child number two now. And um, and it's like the brain is hardwired to forget pain, which is I'm convinced is one of the reasons I became an alcoholic. It's like I forgot all my hangovers. Within a few hours of of them dissipating, I'd be like, Oh, I can go and get drunk again now. Um so I just have a brain that forgets pain to it. So, so part of me is very tempted to go and walk from Canada to Mexico via a different route. Um, and part of me thinks, no, don't do that. Just settle down, grow up and be a responsible adult. So so basically, I don't know is the, is the short answer. But what I've learned about life is if I live too far in the future, I get quite scared in the present. So I tend to just take it each day as it comes and hope that somehow it'll all just unfold and it will all just get to the right destination in its own unique way and I think that's what the trail taught me was everything I worried about happened but it didn't happen in the way I expected it to happen and so I've learned you know it's not going to happen this way and it's not going to happen that way if I make too detailed plans I'll end up disappointed and if I if I don't take enough action of course I'll do nothing so I don't I genuinely don't know but I Part of me is feeling very much watch this space because I it will be bonkers. I can't help myself.
0: Well I'm I'm very excited to see what you do next. Thank you. And thank you. Where yes. where can we find your book? So the book's called Everything You Ever Taught Me.
1: Yeah, by me person irresponsible. And it's available on Amazon and Kindle. So in paperback and ebook copy. Um Lots of people say, is it on audiobooks? But not yet. The cost of producing such a thing is is quite prohibitive. So at the moment, it it is just in paperback. But that means you can use it as a doorstop. (laughs) But you can also use it on your Kindle too. So, you know, use your Kindle as a doorstop. You'll probably break it. So I wouldn't advise that.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm so... um grateful for you glad to hear your story and just see you living your life to its fullest and it's so inspirational you know I'm a a a fat female in my 40s and so I'm like god I want to do something like that
1: I can tell you now you end up really skinny at the end of it and that lasts about two months okay (laughs) really bad again well,
0: thank you. So
1: so there's probably better ways.
0: Okay, good to know. Good to know. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, PI.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie, for having me. I really loved it.
0: Attention Idaho and California residents. If you're shopping for a mortgage, contact PacFi, a mortgage brokerage with the top wholesale lenders in the nation. They are committed to simplifying the mortgage process, saving you time and money. Call 858-442-7048 or visit pacfi.com. NMLS number 1462943, Equal Housing Lender. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at alcoholtippingpoint and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.